Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Hey there, everyone. From KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. Tonight on The Breakdown, we sit down with one of the Assembly GOP Caucus's 18 members. He's a moderate Republican who's been representing California's Central Coast for a little more than a couple years now. Assemblyman Jordan Cunningham is here with us in our Sacramento studio. We'll talk to him about vaping, why he's taken a more moderate position on things like police transparency, and hopefully some other fun stuff, including maybe the wine on the Central I hope Coast. so. Yeah. Did you, did, we'll see if he brought any. I don't think he did. <laughs> um, well, first, Scott, we have our very own Katie Orr in studio with us to talk about all the flurry of activity as the legislature heads hey, into hey guys. final weeks. Um, Katie, what's going on? No. <laughs> you know, just a couple we'll start with AB5. hundred bills. No, well, yeah. I guess, can we start first, though? Charter Tell schools. us what's happening oh. this week, because this is a big week in terms of legislative deadlines, right? Sure, yeah. Uh, this week, Friday, is the suspense file for both the Senate and the Assembly, and that is where uh, these two, uh, the appropriations committees for both houses go rapid fire through a list of bills, and they either say, okay, yes, this one is good, and move it to the floor for a vote, or they say no, and it's essentially dead for the year. And ostensibly, this is about money, but it's not really. Well, it's also right. It's it's a chance for... Uh Leading up to this, lawmakers have sort of been listing their priorities for the leadership, what they want to get through. They've been working on compromises, negotiating deals, trying to uh, make their bill as palatable as possible before it gets to what will now be the final vote, because this is the end of the session. And these are all bills that have passed the House of Origin. Yeah, exactly. So they're on their second uh, go around through the legislature. They've passed where they came from, and now they have to go through the other house and then onto the governor's desk if they're lucky enough to move forward. And so you and most of the Capitol Press Corps have been tracking one bill in particular, AB5. Um, This has to do with contract workers. It came out of a court decision. Um, There's been a lot of activity up here with uh, Lyft and Uber drivers, I know, circling the Capitol and truck drivers. Oh, yeah. The truck drivers were fun. (laughs) They circled the Capitol (laughs) for like an hour, blaring their horns. We remember from City Hall days in San Francisco, it was the cab drivers (laughs) that were always driving around, honking their horns. Now it's Lyft and Uber. So, Katie, what What's the status of this and who's who's on what side and break it down for us? So this bill is still in flux. As you mentioned, AB5 uh, would basically codify a Supreme Court decision that 
clarified who can be listed as a contractor for a company and who has to be classified as an employee. Uh, and so basically the court decision said, if you are doing a service that is core to the business, like Uber drivers driving, you have to be classified as an employee. You cannot be a contractor, which would upend the whole gig economy that we have going on. That's really the basis of their system. They don't really have employees, they say, right? right they exactly. have all these drivers, but they don't work for them. They don't have to give them benefits. Or... And they don't have to buy their cars, which are depreciating. Right. Exactly. <laughs> There's a whole yeah. host of things. They don't, they're not covered by minimum wage. They don't get worker protections, things like that. Gavin Newsom has expressed a desire for sort of a third option where gig workers have their own sort of classification apart from being either just a contractor or uh, an employee. This is something that right share companies have latched onto as well. They've been negotiating with him to try and create this uh, sort of classification, uh, either through legislation or now they're saying that they will actually fund a ballot initiative in 2020. Uh, Uber and Lyft have each contributed $30 million to this campaign already um, to try and get what they want that way. Uh, this could be a negotiating tactic because now the legislature can step in and uh, sort of broker a deal before something goes on to the ballot. But this just indicates that this fight is far from over. Well, it's interesting, too. I think as an entrepreneur, Newsom probably has his head is with the unions because that's who got him where he is. But, you know, in his heart, I think he's an innovator. Mm -hmm. And I think he really identifies with these entrepreneurs, these startups, and now, of course, Uber and Lyft are huge companies, but you know, I think that's that's the tension in some ways inside. Yeah, of, you know, and I think it's him. a tension we've seen exist in Sacramento for a while. Like, government is not really the most innovative, right? <laughs> they well, this is part of the problem. It takes them like ten years exactly. to catch up with something that happened, like, right? You know, and so overnight. how do they now sort of when they're forced to do something, it's really push come to shove, and they have to either you know, make a huge change in one direction or another. And it's, it's, what about the tension. author? It, it, Lorena Gonzalez. I was going to say, she was on our Five. show. She was on our show. Yeah, She's Katie obviously a big union supporter. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some of her tweets this week suggest that maybe she's not happy with being left out or unions being left out of some of these discussions. Totally. It was so interesting because she's, you know, sort of known for her tweeting. Uh, Prowess. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Indiscretion. She is unaf unafraid. And just in the past few days, we've seen her really kind of coming for the governor and his administration saying, like, you know, tech companies should not get to set the rules because the administration is negotiating with uh, rideshare companies right now. Uh, she's saying tech companies should not be the ones to get to set the rules for their employees. Uh, they have, should be able to follow what the state in general uh, decides is the best way to go. Well, and and, and also interesting because she's a very strategic, I think, savvy politician. And so I, I would think if she's going to the trouble of saying these things publicly, that there's a reason for that. Um, anyway, right. we, we we're you know, I, I do want to get to one other thing before we break, which is um, the governor did get a big win yesterday or on Wednesday around charter schools and a negotiation that really, um, I would say, sort of started to take shape during the campaign when his opponent in the primary, Antonio Villaraigosa, got, I think, what, 23? 
$3 million or something crazy from charter schools. Um, and there's been this ongoing, yeah. Yeah, this ongoing <laughs> fight between charters and the teachers unions. And um, so, I mean, this seems like a pretty big deal for the left, essentially, on, on this fight. Yeah, I think they got a lot of uh, uh, what they were looking for, like teachers unions. Basically, school districts will get to have more say over charter schools, you know, how they develop. There's going to be a pause for two years on new online charters. Uh, teachers in charter schools will have to have the same credentials as public school teachers. But charter schools retain the right to repeal, uh, to appeal decisions that the district makes, which is seen as a win for them. Yeah, and I think it's also kind of a recognition of reality in the, in, on the part of the charter schools. Like, as you said, Marisa, they backed the wrong horse. Mm -hmm. uh, and Jerry Brown was very much in their corner. He started so a couple of, And yeah. Schwarzenegger. So they've had a good run, you know, for quite a few years. And, and I think that that's part of the reason, though, that this is so ripe for this political um, con compromise is that I think that there have been some good actors like in any industry and some bad actors. And I think that the fact that there was a lot of support for them in the executive branch in a way paved the way for this to happen because mm -hmm. it's so much easier for the unions and others to, to point to the problem. So anyway, we're going to let Katie go. Thank you so much, Katie. Good luck in You're the next welcome. week. Thanks. Thanks <laughs> we'll be here with you. <laughs> yeah. um, all right. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we will be joined by California State Assemblyman Jordan Cunningham. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer, and we are thrilled to welcome California Republican Central Coast Assemblyman. That's a lot of titles there. Jordan Cunningham, welcome to The Breakdown. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks for having me. Of course. So, I was going to start by having you tell about the district, but you were just here listening to us talk about the charter school debate. And um, you mentioned that you were the one Republican who had supported that bill. So I just wanted to kind of get you to weigh in on this deal and what you think, you know, why you think it, it's probably a good thing. So I think the deal is a good compromise. It restores the appeal process. That was a big deal. I talked to Patrick O'Donnell, who carried the bill in the Assembly and has it over in the Senate. Fellow Central Coaster. Um, yeah, a little bit south, Long Beach. But him and I, are we work a lot together on career technical education-related stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, he's a great guy. And he assured me that they'd put that appeal process back in the bill in the, in the Senate. And this is basically so if a local district says, no, you can't start this charter, the state can at least review that decision? That's right. And I think it's I need to look at the specifics. I don't know if it's the state or the county level. Oh, but there's okay. some sort of review because there are school districts, right, that are captured by 
um, you know, certain interest groups that are really that make it difficult to have any charter at all. Right. But on the flip side, I think we've seen charters had a great run. I, I'm pro-charter. I think they're, they're valuable things for innovation in the school system. But I think you need accountability, too. These are right. public dollars. Even in my district, in my assembly district, we have 35 charter schools. 33 of them are awesome. And doing great things like you know, Grizzly Youth Academies educating dropout at-risk youth and putting them through like a paramilitary program. Their graduation uh-huh. rate's 90%. I mean, this is awesome, right? Um, we have two that are suing the school districts that we're not even sure if they're educating kids in our school district or area. And they're really just siphoning public yeah. resources. And so you I feel mean, like seen... that will really address I think this, this, this compromise will address that? I think it will. I think, yeah. it, I think it will. Cool. Well, let's talk about where you're from. Um, as we noted, it's a lovely, lovely district. <laughs> we it's both spent the time there. Yeah. Um, and you were born and raised on the Central Coast. So tell us, like, t- can you just, for folks that may not be familiar, tell us what your district encompasses and, and kind of where you grew up. Sure. It's uh, 35th district. It's all of San Luis Obispo County and northern Santa Barbara County. So it starts at the Monterey-San Luis Obispo County line in the north. Uh, it goes to the Kern County line in the east. The west is the ocean. And the southernmost part is uh, the city of Lompoc, which it includes Vandenberg Air Force Base, uh, city of Santa Maria, city of Guadalupe, uh, Orkut, and Vandenberg Village. That's a lot of area to cover. 100 miles north to south. So you represent San Simeon and the elephant seals? I do. Yeah, although they can't vote. (laughs) (laughs) It's <laughs> yeah, probably yet. a good thing. Not yet. Um, so you're in your third generation Central Coast, I understand. I, my kids are. Your so kids my, are. My okay. folks moved there in 1971 from North Dakota. Both of my parents were from Western North Dakota. Um, my dad took a job at the California Men's Colony, the prison there. Oh, uh, so at age 22 and 19, they moved to the Central Coast and stayed hmm. stayed there. Fortunately, I thank them about once a month for. Not having me born in North Dakota. I'm, you know, I'm curious. This is a total digression, but I've really gotten into Deadwood, uh, which is, takes place in <laughs> South Dakota. South Dakota. Right? Dakota. Yeah. As Black I, Hills I'm just, area. just like shot in the dark. If you watch that, I show. love Deadwood. Yeah, no. <laughs> absolutely. It's just I such a great window into like that part. How that? Oh yeah. How their attitudes about government uh, developed. But I haven't seen the movie one yet. I haven't either. I'm okay, still working I'm, my way through it's season in my two. Queue. Yeah. Once we get done with session, maybe I'll catch up. <laughs> uh, great show. So, so this is all impressive to me because <laughs> we should say that the assemblyman has four children, and I have two, and I still can't keep up with the— uh... Oh, we don't keep up. <laughs> <laughs> it's managed you... chaos. Yeah, right. What... How would you say your, you know, your dad being in law enforcement, broadly speaking, you know, how did that influence you? Uh, you were a prosecutor. You were, uh, I think, an intern. And we'll get with... to that, but as a kid, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, like, did we, were there stories about you know, so, his work or that kind of thing? Yeah, my dad didn't really bring it home much. Uh, he was a, a prison guard before I was born. He was a cop when I was really little. Uh, then he went to law school at night uh, while my mom worked as a grocery store clerk. And then um, I'm the oldest of four. So by the time I think I was uh, a couple years old, he became a lawyer. Okay. And then he did public defender work and then, you know, wills and trusts and whatever kind public of Public defender, in the door. though. Interesting. Yeah, yeah so he did public size. defense at first. And after five years... Uh, and I actually verified this with a retired judge who knew, you know, was a good friend. He's like, your dad kept beating us in trial, so we had to hire him. <laughs> so he became a deputy DA where he spent 34 years. And what oh, were the politics? Did you have, like, political discussions around the dinner table? Uh, not much. My dad, he changed from a Democrat when he was younger to a Republican, and he's pretty conservative, you know, politically, certainly to my right. You know, he, he lets me know. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. uh, he is very conservative on law and order stuff, for yeah. sure. 
Um, and my mom was a registered Democrat until 2016, but you know, was not politically active in, at all. And was that because I mean, that's we, when you ran for state assembly that she... Yeah, she probably won't admit that, but I think she changed for me. Probably. That's nice of her. Even she, with the open primary, she, she didn't even have to. She couldn't. I asked her to name the last Democrat you voted for for president, and she said Carter. Okay. So she was one of these just never changed her registration people. Interesting. So, you know, it was a mixed household sort of politically. Um, but my dad, my parents, you know, they were he was active because of his job. And he was on the ledge committee for the California DA's Association for 20 years. So uh, when I was in the, the DA's office for a couple of three years in San Luis County, we moved back from the East Coast, D.C. to to uh, to home in 2010 I joined the DA's office. Actually, got to work with my dad for three years, which was interesting. And oh, cool. That's cool. Um, you know, him and I. He started bringing me up to the Legcom meetings up here for the DA's association. All right. Well, let's back up because before all that, you went to Point Loma Nazarene University, a Christian college in San Diego. Um, and did you major in history or physics? I saw both listed. Uh, I majored in physics and minored in economics. Interesting. And then, and then you ended up going. Did you go? intern for the FBI before law school? Was it was that... uh, a summer in between my third and fourth year of college. Okay. So I went back to D.C. I'd never been east of Minnesota in my life. Uh, we drove back to D.C., me and a buddy, you know, did a cross-country road trip. Uh, I interned in the, the firearms and tool marks unit within the Hoover building. Hmm. And so, it you know, I was a physics major, so they had me analyzing equipment and doing trigger pull ballistics. tests and doing ballistic stuff. Um, for, it was really cool. Yeah. You know, totally, I mean... Just a dream internship. I I thought for a while about joining the FBI, but that desire sort of faded. <laughs> and do you feel a little relieved now after the last couple of years of FBI Absolutely. politics? Absolutely. What I mean, you, the FBI is a politicization of. I of think it's terrible for the country. I really do. I think it's terrible, and this is not a political statement. I just think the FBI always had, uh, you know, unlike certain other agencies with three letters like the CIA that's always had sort of this dark arts aspect to it and espionage and all that. The FBI always had this reputation, I think, of being apolitical, professional, um, and, you know, anything that erodes that or any political, I don't know, what's the word? Thank you. Yeah, it's a terrible. Uh, Politicking. (laughs) It's just bad for, for the country. I just think you need institutions that you can trust because, you know, leave the politics to the politicians and then everybody else should be professional. That's my that's yeah. my personal view. So you ended up um, you were a Senate fellow after graduating, and I think you were working in then Senate Minority Leader Jim Brulte's office. Is yes. that right? Yeah. Yes. He uh, such an interesting guy, Jim Brulte. Uh, he's no longer in the legislature, of course, but has a very shrewd political mind. Very much a tactician. What did you learn from him? Well, I learned quite a bit. We uh, I carried a couple of bills for him. I did some policy analysis. I drove him around a bunch to different speaking events. Uh, he was a uh, a fantastic politician in the sense of like he could go. I walked, I watched him walk into rooms where he didn't know anybody at all, and uh, he, he was. And he has a presence, shall we say? He's oh, yeah. a big well, guy, yeah. <laughs> huge guy. I mean, he's six five or six six. Yeah. I mean, uh, so he commands the room instantly. Um, I watched him right after the energy crisis was had just hit and things were going crazy you know everybody was it's like the end of the world kind of thing and he was he answered questions and gave a speech about how we got to the energy crisis what the legislature had done what the governor needed to do what the you know totally off the cuff and then answer questions from the audience for 30 minutes and i mean he was really good on his feet um 
as a interpersonally, he was really super aloof, which really? I found interesting. Mm. Yeah, his presence in a, he, in case he listens to this, sorry, Jim. I'm done. <laughs> we got to get him on. Actually, I don't know that I can call him Jim. I, I you know, I still call him Senator. Really? Yeah. It's a force of habit, right? Uh, you know, he could be pretty distant, and he was uh, demanding of staff, but that's kind of how you have to be to be productive. I always found it interesting that he and Willie Brown were such good friends. Uh, Brulte got along with everybody. I mean, him and Jim or John Burton at the time was, um, you know, in leadership for the for the Democrats. I think. And then they were both heading the part their respective parties at the same time, which I think was like funny to watch. He loved Burton. I mean, they 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 loan each other Sopranos back then. It was VHS tapes. They and, and maybe. No, I don't even know if it was DVDs. DVDs yet? I don't remember. This <laughs> I is think we're starting starting yeah, on the DVDs. Anyway, they yeah. loaned each other yeah. Sopranos. I, I interviewed shows. him at uh, one of the Republican conventions, and I, we had to get a release form for him to sign, and he signed his name Willie Brown. <laughs> I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> That's funny. All right, a reminder: if you're just joining us, I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer, and you are listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. We are talking to California Republican Assemblyman Jordan Cunningham, who represents the Central Coast. Um, so after that, you ended up going to law school at UC Berkeley, which I. Believe believe is where you met your wife. That's right. And that must have been a pretty different experience than your undergrad, which was like a small Christian college. And then you go to the belly of the liberal beast at UC Berkeley. This is how you become a political moderate. You start at one extreme <laughs> and then you throw yourself into the other extreme environment and you figure out, well, hey, yeah, I mean, I is that true? Somewhere. A little to bit. a degree. I mean, yeah, <laughs> Berkeley was a wild place. Yeah. I, and 9-11 happened my first couple weeks there. Okay. And, uh, Oh man, that that was a rough time to be there because the anti-American sentiment among some of the campus was a little tough for me. Mm-hmm. Even after nine eleven. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it was interesting. But I found my crew. Right. I mean, I remember sitting down in the campus quad you know, area where you know the food court or whatever at Bolt Hall, and you know three guys I didn't know real well. I'd kind of met them at orientation or whatever started talking about how crazy everybody was and how they in terms of the reaction to to 9-11 one of them was you know in an army reservist and he became a good buddy and you know those those four guys are my best friends some of my best friends out of law school that's cool so you know we you know you you make your way and you find your people wherever you know berkeley's a great institution i the, the you know getting a degree from there kind of uh, was very helpful in terms of that first job and getting hooked up with law firms and and hey I you know how lucky can you get a Republican who goes to Berkeley and meets his spouse yeah I mean, what <laughs> what what better thing can you ask for you you know you've a couple times alluded and Marisa did as well to your being a moderate Republican uh, kind of an endangered species a little bit up in Sacramento uh, I'm gonna apply it. for protection. Yeah, you might be able to get like an nobody, EPA waiver yeah, or something. Nobody can yeah. build around me or something. So like you mentioned the <laughs> charter school bill being the only Republicans to support that. I mean, do you so do you get blowback for that? I mean, how what's the dynamic like within the caucus? Well, for the most part, they're pretty good. I think as our numbers have shrank, it actually helps you be a little bit more of a cohesive team. Um, there's a recognition that you know my district's it's coastal. It's even registration, if not a little bit Democratic at this point. I checked yesterday. Uh, I think it was like one point D Democratic, one, but I yeah, think is where we're at. Yeah, um, it's you know, it's I'm going to be voting my district as best as I can figure out what it wants me to do and what's best for my district. And it's that's not I'm not going to vote like somebody from Fresno. What's interesting to me though is that even as we've seen, you know, the numbers shrink and the population become, you know, the no party preference independents grow. That 
largely except for Chad Mays, who got ousted because of it. The leaders in both houses have been pretty conservative Republicans. I mean, do you feel like there's any shift in the caucus or is that just because that's who still the majority of Republicans are in in the state legislature? Yeah, I think it's natural to expect the leadership of your caucus to sort of reflect the center gravity of your of your membership of your mm-hmm. caucus. And I think that's still that's still, it's still a conservative caucus. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, I think that's accurate. I I have no desire to be in leadership, uh, so you know I support Marie and I wish her the best. And I'll and just like leaders that have come before her, I will do everything to uh, I can to help her succeed. But it looks like a totally miserable job to me. I know, right? <laughs> I just don't <laughs> totally. have any desire. I mean, quite frankly, you know. even even being in the majority. It's... Yeah, well, I just wonder. You know, you've got a convention coming up in a few weeks. And obviously your party is now a third party, literally, because there's more uh, no party preference voters than registered Republicans. You know, as a moderate Republican, like, what do you see as the way forward for your party? Well, I think you've got to offer something to the California electorate. Um, There's there's two separate issues there, I think. One is how do we grow a caucus, which is uh, largely a function of just... uh, being good about the campaign side of politics, recruiting candidates that fit their districts, which is increasingly going to mean on the natural, you know, diverse candidates, which is important, uh, but also with views that fit the district views and giving them resources so they can succeed. As far as making Republicans uh, statewide viable, um, that's a tougher, longer term thing, I think. And we just have a bad brand here. And it's not any one person's fault, but... um, you know, hardline immigration stuff I don't think plays well in California. Uh, I think we've dropped the ball. We I've tried to, in my time in office, as a coastal Republican in an environmental district, and I remind folks in my caucus that give me a little blowback for some of my green votes, I tell them, hey, the majority of Republicans right. in my district oppose offshore oil drilling. Okay. Yeah, this is <laughs> yeah. not partisan on the yeah, Central Coast. That, yeah. That's, you know, we like clean air and beaches and, you know, uh, you know, the majority of my district's pretty concerned about climate change. And, you know, so it's it's now we we may want to do things differently than the majority party's doing them now. Like I want to preserve nuclear power because mm-hmm. I'm worried about climate change. That's a, an important thing. And I've introduced an ACA to drive that conversation. I also have the last nuclear plant, Diablo Canyon, in my district. And that's set to close in 2025, I think. That's right. Yeah. So what do you see for that? Like what, what you want to preserve nuclear power. There's not a huge constituency for that in California. Well, it's interesting because I think if you I think a few things are going to happen over the next five or six years. One is the evidence on climate change becomes more and more solidified and more and more people are accepting that we need to take action on that. Uh, two is we've set these SB 100 really ambitious, clean energy, you know, GHG emission-free energy renewable targets, and we put those in law. Uh, what we don't have really is a plan to get there. <laughs> and the solar, wind are great, and I think we'd need an all-the-above energy strategy for sure. Mm-hmm. But, you know, solar doesn't produce when the sun goes down. So you got to invest in big-scale storage. Uh, you've got to have some baseload power generation. Uh, that, you know, can produce power. The, the peak demand time in California is the two hours after the sun goes down, generally speaking, because people get home, they run their ACs, they turn on their lights, they start streaming, you know, Deadwood or whatever <laughs> whatever their show of choices or they watch sports or news, whatever. Uh, so 
you know, but that's when solar production goes to zero. Well, that's a big problem for right. the California ISO grid operator, right? You know, nuclear gives you a base load. That one plant, Diablo Canyon, is 10% of the state's energy grid, 24-7, 365. But the opposite. And carbon-free. So, you know, I think we need to be having these conversations. Mm-hmm. Like, is it realistic to get to a carbon-free energy production uh, mandate that we have in California, much less nationwide, without including nuclear? And I think the answer might be no. And is that something you think people on the left in the Capitol are willing to hear and have I that conversation? Don't, I think we're looking at possibly doing a ballot committee campaign mm-hmm. or, or opening a ballot committee as well. Because you think the public sentiment might be there? I think it might be shifting. And I think if, if people understood preservation of nuclear power, so we essentially in state law sort of arbitrarily say, okay, certain types of renewable we like, but other types i.e. large hydro and nuclear, we don't like. Now, there's no basis in fact to discriminate between nuclear, large hydro, and uh, you know solar, wind, geothermal, biomass. They're all carbon-free emission, mm-hmm. uh, carbon emission-free energy sources. So what my constitutional amendment would say is you just, it's technology neutral, you count everything towards the RPS right. goal if it doesn't emit carbon. That includes nuclear, that includes large hydro. Adam Gray's been doing that on large hydro. He's got a similar ACA. All right, you brought up Adam Gray, and and I just we only have about a minute left, maybe less. But I know you've worked with him around uh, vaping issues and yeah. and um, e-cigarettes, which is a huge issue. We're going to have a ballot measure in California or in San Francisco, San Francisco. two ballot measures, maybe. Um, just can you briefly just talk? I know you wrote an op-ed recently about your concern, and again, I think this is an area where you're reaching across the aisle and and really being a more moderate um, example and listening to your kids, maybe a little. Well, hey, you know. So, uh, uh, from the mouth of babes, right? Or well, in this case, teenagers. I mean, my you know my two daughters. Well, one of them is high school now, but they were middle schoolers last year. Um, you know, I asked them about uh, whether anybody vapes at their school, and they laughed at me. They're like that, everybody's doing that. I'm like what? <laughs> and this is a you know pretty nice middle class school. I mean, it is. So it's uh, where Adam and I and Rob Rivas and and Sydney Kamagardov were part. Of, were the four authors of this bill. Where we see eye to eye, which is different than certain health advocates see the issue, is the issues kids using the products before their brains are developed. Uh, you know, getting that pattern of addiction established while their brains are growing. Hey, if adults want to do it, knock yourselves out. My father-in-law moved from cigarettes to vaping, harm reduction, and, and probably prolonged his life. All right. Well, we're going to get Adam Gray on here sometime to talk about all that. Assemblyman Jordan Cunningham, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. This is a lot of fun. All right. That'll do it for this edition of Political Breakdown, a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producer is Guy Marzarotti. Our engineers are Steve Fox and Seal Muller. Our leadership team includes Vinnie Tong, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter at Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. However you're listening, please don't forget to subscribe to The Breakdown on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your audio. And while you're there, leave us a rating or a review. Maybe five stars. Or you can follow me on, yeah, right? (laughs) Or you can find me on Twitter. Be nice. I'm I'm Lagos. That is a wrap for this week's Political Breakdown from KQED. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Hi there. I'm Randal Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. 